Hello. Welcome to Documents in Detail, a webinar and podcast series that explores the core documents of American history. Today, we are joined by our host, David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, and panelist Stephen F. Knott of the United States Naval War College and William Addo of the University of Dallas. Tonight's episode is the first of three episodes that we will devote to an in-depth look at the history of American foreign policy. Join us as we dissect the Pacificus Helvidius debates of the 1790s and debate the role of idealism versus realism in the American approach to international affairs. All right. Hello, all. My name is David Krugler. I'm a professor at the University of wisconsin Platteville and a faculty member in the Masters of American History and Government program at Ashland University. Welcome to another episode of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically important documents. We encourage all of you to join us today by participating in the conversation, not just listening, but by participating by submitting questions via the Q&A box on your Zoom app. Uh, please do not use the chat box. And I will try to get to as many of your great questions as possible. Within the next week, you will receive an email with links for further reading, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from tonight's program. The speeches, letters, and other documents we're using for this year's webinars all come from various volumes in our core documents series. Uh, we have almost 50 of these publications, which are also available as individual digital documents. You can find them at our Teaching American Histories document database, which has nearly 4,500 individual items now. That can be found at tah.org, tah.org. The subject of tonight's program comes from the volume American Foreign Policy to 1899, edited by Stephen F. Knott. The document is the Pacificus Helvidius Debates, and here to discuss it is Steve Knott himself. Steve is the Thomas and Mabel Guy Professor of American History and Government at Ashland University and Professor of National Security Affairs at the United States Naval War College. Also join us, joining us this night is William Addo, an Associate Professor of History at the University of Dallas. Stephen and William are faculty members in Ashland University's master's program in American history and government as well. Uh, Steve is also the author of a fine new biography on John F. Kennedy that I encourage you all to take a look at. All right, Steve and Will, the first question I'd like to ask you uh, relates to George Washington's neutrality proclamation uh, of April 1793. We can't understand the document at hand without knowing a little bit more about that proclamation. What did the president say, and why did he believe it necessary for him as the chief executive to issue such a proclamation? What's going on in the world that requires it? And uh, I said we'd start with a question, that's three, so please feel free to choose any one of the three. Well, I'll jump in, uh, David. Thank, thank you for hosting tonight, and Will, looking forward to our discussion as well. Um, so I think President Washington issues this proclamation, which will become known as the Neutrality Proclamation, although I believe the word neutrality never actually appears in it. And I think that was at the behest of Secretary of State Jefferson, who really felt that issuing this statement was a mistake, both in terms of bad policy and then also on a kind of constitutional level. In other words, Jefferson comes to believe, along with Madison, that this decision properly lies with Congress, not the executive. But uh, Washington is concerned about the new nation in terms of getting dragged into one of these perennial conflicts between the great powers of Europe. Uh, the French Revolution by April 1793 has taken a fairly bloody turn and will only get bloodier, unfortunately, over time. The monarchical powers of Europe decided that they wanted to sort of quash this revolution, this uh, anti-aristocracy, anti-monarchy revolution in its cradle. And so you had a protracted conflict really between 1792 and 1802. And the question was, what was going to be the stance of the United States vis-a-vis 
this French Revolution and the attempts of the old world monarchies to put it down. Many Americans felt a certain affection, a certain affinity for France. Obviously, they had helped us win our revolution. They probably were inspired. I wouldn't even say probably. They were inspired by our revolution. So many Americans felt we had almost a moral obligation to assist the French revolutionaries in resisting the old world monarchies. And then on another level, those who wanted to provide some type of assistance to France argued that a treaty between the United States and France dating back to 1778 required us to intervene on behalf of the French. Now from Washington's position, this nation, our nation, was in no position uh, to assist this revolutionary regime against, against the sort of royal alliance that had been created. And so that's the bigger picture from Washington's perspective, looking strictly in a sense at the national interest. It was not in our interest to assist the French and thus the issuance of this proclamation in April, 1793. Thank you, Steve. I, th I think that addressed uh, all three of the interrelated uh, questions um, I posed. Um, I would like to ask a follow-up about that treaty from 1778. One thing I emphasize to my students is that a critical oversight um, of the revolutionaries was not to put some sort of expiration date or, or terms of um, phase out uh, for the treaty. Is that a factor here? Is that what's leading to these differing interpretations? Yeah, I think the idea would have been that it would have been a treaty in perpetuity, but it had certain conditions that were placed on it. Um, and um, you know, one of them would have been that, um, you, you know, you're bound by this in terms of, uh, you know, if France engages in a defensive war, this is a kind of part of the problem here moving forward that puts them in such a difficult position um, as far as and obviously, you know, Hamilton is going to make the most of this to try to argue, look, this was uh, you know, they're the aggressor. Uh, this isn't a defensive war. Um, so, you know, we should just abrogate that, uh, ignore that effectively. Um, and, um, it, you know, not, not um, you know, participate and uh, use that as the basis for, uh, I guess, I think kind of key here is a very quick declaration of neutrality. I think that's kind of part of what this turns on is that Jefferson and Hamilton both could and Steve may want to speak to this. I know we can with greater specificity than I can, but that they both want neutrality, but they see how neutrality is realized very differently. Um, you know, Hamilton thinks that it's best to staunch this now, stop it before it becomes a problem. Jefferson sees it as an opportunity, really, uh, to uh, and I don't know, sort of past kind of uh, diplomatic experience on his part coming to the fore here, but he sees an opportunity to, as he more or less says to leverage this situation. Let's see what we can get from it. And um, and I think Hamilton uh, really, you know, you hear a lot about Jefferson kind of reacting in abhorrence to Hamilton and his supposed kind of aristocratic inclinations. But I think that Hamilton has a kind of reaction to Jefferson in this respect. You don't, you know, neutrality is not negotiable. It's not for sale. It's not a commodity. I think he was uh, rather, you know, sort of put off by the suggestion that we be a little bit cagey, even coy in how we, you know, a neutrality proclamation, as Steve said, that never uses the word. But beyond that, even just really play this thing out uh, and see how we can kind of maximize our advantage um, based on it. Thank you, Will. Speaking of neutrality, Hamilton makes an interesting reference at the start of his letter, uh, writing as Pacificus in uh, June of 1793. He says, this is necessary so the nation won't be held responsible for acts done by its citizens without the approval uh, of the government. This would be a, um, in contradiction of the principles uh, of neutrality. Is, is Hamilton saying there we have to take action to suppress a trade that might ensnare the nation if we have commercial interests that want to supply the Republic of France, say, or the monarchical opponents of it? And um, also, what definition of neutrality is 
Hamilton relying on? You make a reference to the author, Steve, in, in the introduction to your document um, uh, from which he gets his ideas. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that as well as we talk about this effort perhaps to prevent trading from dragging the country into war. Yeah, I think, David, you're referring to, I believe it's, I may butcher this pronunciation, but Emmerich Vattel, mm -hmm. um, who was kind of the uh, international political economy type uh, of his of his time. Um, I, I think for Hamilton, absolutely, it was a fear that this new young nation with a central government that was still, uh, you know, something of a roll of the dice in terms of its effectiveness. He really did fear that certain, particularly Southern states, might engage in a kind of uh, both commerce with, with the revolutionary regime in France, but also even beyond that. I think there was a genuine fear and it was bolstered by the visit of citizen Genet and then another French envoy by the name of Andre Michaud, both of whom were here under certain cover, uh, but were actually spending a lot of time in the American South recruiting uh, both commercial and military support for the French revolutionary regimes. As many of you know, know Genet takes his sweet time. He actually arrives in Charleston, South Carolina and slowly works his way up to Philadelphia before presenting his credentials to the president. And all along the way through South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, he is recruiting uh, material and, I don't know, psychological support for his government, much to the ire of President Washington. So for Hamilton, this was one of many tests regarding the ability of the central government, which Hamilton believed had total control over American foreign policy. We can get into the debate about whether that's the president or Congress, but there was no question in Hamilton's mind, this was a federal, this was a national issue that was going to be challenged by uh, Jefferson and his followers and, and by the uh, intervention of Citizen Genet and Andre Michaud to undermine the central government's control over foreign policy and over those critical questions of going to war or staying at peace. Thank you, Steve. Yes, I mean, I was hoping we would touch upon the antics of uh, Citizen uh, Genet upon his arrival uh, in the country. Let's get into the document itself and Hamilton's uh, argument, which is firmly rooted in his reading of, of Article 2 of the Constitution related to the powers uh, of the uh, president. How sound is his uh, reasoning? Um, how valid is it for him, based on the understanding of the Constitution at the time, to argue <clears throat> that the power to declare neutrality exclusively remains in the hands uh, of the uh, executive. Will, do you want to get us started uh, on, on that? Sure, sure, I'll start. I hope it's not too perfunctory, but I'll do my best on this and, and, and say this, that I think that there's shades of Hamilton I, here in terms of his reasoning, for me at any rate, when he talked about the the um, the National Bank, when he says, look, you know, he's talking about implied powers here. Do I have to go through every single uh, understanding, every possible meaning of the of the word necessary. Um, there are certain things implicit in the idea of national sovereignty. Uh, and, you know, without being able to exercise those, then you're not uh, nationally sought, you have no nation ultimately. Well, for the executive in this instance, while it's clear, and he acknowledges, I think, that it is quite clear that the power to declare war lies in, you know, in Cong the hands of Congress. But the, the uh, you know, the executive, particularly as both commander in chief, uh, that has such a decided role in the, in the issue of treaties, nonetheless has to engage, as he says, in, essentially in the intercourse of peace. He has to do the kinds of things that he can do that can be done. Uh, I don't know that he specifies it this way, but more quickly, he can act quickly in a way that the Congress can't uh, act quickly and, and, and presumably must act quickly in any number of instances to try to forestall some of these problems that may in fact lead to war. So he kind of goes into the business about this, the, uh, I think the term he uses is essentially the specification 
um, you know, there, uh, because of the difficulty of a complete and perfect specification of all the cases of executive authority would naturally dictate the use of general terms, right? I, I, you know, there, there is something implicit in executive authority, and part of that would be taking those steps necessary to, I mean, you don't have to wait for the situation right on the verge of war to emerge, utilize executive authority in such a way um, as he believes Washington ultimately will do with the issuance of this proclamation to to forestall that um, and not um, you know not wait if you will for um, situation to worsen or for the necessity ultimately of a of a congressional um, declaration of war but you you have to do what you can uh, you know while you can and something that he regards as clearly within the competency of the executive that is not um, uh, a usurping of uh, war declaration power. But if the executive is commander in chief, uh, the executive has a, such a clear hand in, as I say, in treaty making that this is not beyond the purview of executive um, power. Uh, thank you, Will. You uh, touch upon a problem that Hamilton indirectly addresses. Who speaks for the nation when it comes to relations between nations? For the new republic, this is uh, not only a challenge uh, it's also a challenge to the world, which has to figure out how to deal with this nation. If you have uh, multiple voices, competing voices from the legislative branch, that's going to, to create confusion. Uh, Steve, your your thoughts on on Hamilton's uh, reading here of Article Two and the powers of the chief executive? Yeah, well, of course, I would say that Hamilton's argument has been used by succeeding generations of those who are sort of desiring to expand executive autonomy over foreign policy and. You know that has its that has its dangers, and as recently as the War Powers Act debate of 1973, you saw people on both sides of that battle citing either Pacificus or Helvidius. So I'm well aware, you know, I'm a good Hamiltonian, but I'm well aware of of some of the dangers, perhaps, in Hamilton's somewhat open-ended, expansive reading of presidential power, executive power. But Will really put it, I think, quite nicely. I'd actually also underline that passage where Hamilton says, it's simply impossible, and I'm loosely paraphrasing here, to have a complete and perfect specification of all of the the challenges uh, that the American government are going to be confronted with in the foreign policy arena. You just can't do it. So you have a kind of general uh, use of phrases like the executive power shall be vested and a president of the United States. And I think that goes right to the heart of your question, David. I mean, for Hamilton, and I would say for many of the founders, executive power meant something fairly specific. It's not just a throwaway line. They didn't just pull it off some template somewhere. Um, You know, it meant in the Lockean sense of dealing with matters beyond our borders. Uh, And that the president as head of state uh, possess that power uh, to to engage with the rest of the world as as the chief of state, as the nation's chief dif- chief diplomat, as the man that foreign ambassadors presented, like Genet, their credentials to. Uh, specific powers given to Congress, like the power to declare war, as Will mentioned, were and would be retained by Congress. But up until the point at which Congress decides to declare war, the calls essentially are going to be made by the president, according to Hamilton. And that, in his view, is the only way that America can have a coherent and effective foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how the the, the two men, um, you know, shade the Constitution, the two articles toward the respective powers. Uh, of the federal government and the chief executive on the one hand and uh, Congress uh, on uh, the other. Um, Let's talk about uh, Helvidius uh, now, Uh, James Madison, of course, uh, Hamilton writing as Pacificus. Madison begins by uh, declaring, I mean, I think we can read it this way in in the very first paragraph that we have parties Pacificus, who are aiding the enemies of the United States. Is is that too harsh of a line? Is that needlessly 
provocative. I, I, you know, we had kind of have a slow moving tweet storm here. You know, they're, they're debating in the newspapers over over months because they don't have yeah. Twitter. But it, it did seem like a little bit of trolling there uh, on the part of Madison. No, no question, David. I think for for Jefferson and Madison and for their followers, this was yet Hamilton's stance on this question was yet another example of his closet monarchism. Uh, there were many who came to believe by this point that Hamilton was not only a closet monarch, he was actually a British agent. Hmm. And he was somehow manipulating the somewhat, I hate to use this term, but dim-witted, slow, aging president. Of course, aging, I think he was in his early 60s, which really strikes at my heart when I hear this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was this perception in that quote you just cited from Madison that is a piece, part of this piece here, the conviction that Hamilton was carrying water for the British, either due to a principled belief that the British system was the greatest in the world, or a somewhat unprincipled practice of taking payoffs and actually serving as something of a secret agent for the British government. This gets about as ugly as it can get. And ultimately, of course, President Washington will be dragged into this as well. Let me just make one quick point here. It's always Hamilton that's going to be the target at this point. Washington is still somewhat protected as uh, you know, a figure above the partisan fray, as the sort of one unifying figure in this new government, the war hero, the man who won the American Revolution. So Hamilton is going to take all the slings and arrows directed from the Jeffersonian side. And as you mentioned, David, they get they get pretty ugly at times. Yeah, uh, you know, we'll have a, there's another passage in, in which um, Pacificus is accused of setting the executive up to be a, a tyrant. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, and so we'll, yeah. we'll get to that passage um, uh, in a moment. Maybe I'm just going to add in there. Oh, yeah, Can I jump ahead, in just well, real quick? Yeah, it just, it is, it is, uh, and I don't, um, you know, I'm always a little bit cognizant of the idea of, well, you know, are, does this mean that you're somehow, I'm saying for myself, not taking Madison or taking the Helvidius argument seriously. Uh, so I don't mean to be dismissive of what Madison goes on to say here in any way, shape or form. Um, but having looked at this from the standpoint of the, say from about 1791 forward, the back and forth, where sort of Jefferson and Madison on one side and Hamilton on the other it's pretty jarring, I have to say, coming from Madison here. I almost felt, you know, Jefferson's instructions, if I could put it that way, to Madison on this were, no one will enter the list with this man. You know, take up, you know, take up the cudgel or whatever he said, you know, cut him to pieces. I mean, that yeah. was Jefferson, you know, yeah. cut him to pieces in the public eye, in the public understanding. So, um, I felt like Madison's kind of leading <laughs> with cutting him to pieces, uh, you know, and then going on with the kind of, uh, I suppose, easy enough where Madison, where, excuse me, where Hamilton's concerned, sort of charges of both Anglophilia and a kind of monarchical um, inclination on, uh, on Hamilton's part. Um, and, I, you know, it's, to me, it's sort of been that way a bit since Jefferson hired that Philip Freneau to begin writing these pieces against Hamilton's financial plan. Because, uh, you know, Freneau actually is still around at this point, and he will make observations of this by to kind of follow up on Steve's point uh, about Hamilton taking the slings, and he absolutely does. But I will say, by the time you get a bit into Washington's second term, oh, yeah. Even Washington is getting hammered, and Jefferson, I can't quote him chapter and verse, but he will essentially say, I'm sorry that this is happening, but he brought it on himself. Hmm. I mean, he ultimately, you know, brought this on himself. When you yeah. see Will, uh, sorry, David, you, you see Will in that letter that Jefferson writes to Philip Messiah in 1795, in the midst of an even more brutal battle over the Jay Treaty, yeah. Um where Jefferson accuses Washington, in essence, of being something of a, pardon the expression, a whore for Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, that was supposed to be a private letter. It goes public, much to Jefferson's embarrassment. But do not underestimate the extent to which these battles took on a very personal nature. Uh, and by 1795-96, President Washington is actually 
for the most part, cut off all contact with Jefferson and also eventually cutting off all contact with Madison. Yeah, I, I, I think after, um, after Jefferson resigns, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think he and Washington ever communicate again. Is that accurate? Uh, that least, could be, it could be accurate. It's certainly after the Maasai letter, that, that's okay. the end of it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, Martha Washington will later say that two worst days of her life were when her husband passed away in December 1799, when President Washington dies. And the second worst day of her life was when President-elect Jefferson paid a courtesy call to her at Mount Vernon in February or March of uh, 1801. That's how much that animosity between Washington and Jefferson uh, took hold to the point where the former first lady had to sort of, it was all she could do to greet Jefferson with some modicum of civility. Uh, yes, a, a reminder that if we think uh, the personal, the political becoming the personal is a is a, a recent yeah. function of American governance and politics, uh, it's not. I had to run with the slow motion tweet war, David. I mean, that's, a great that's very appropriate, I that's think. That's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> Use it as you wish. Thank you. Um, speaking of Washington and letters, we do have a question uh, from the Q&A. Um, asking, was Washington in correspondence with Lafayette at the time? And I'd like to broaden that question from uh, Richard Rago as well and uh, ask uh, you both what Jefferson thought of the French Republic personally. I mean, he understands his roles as the president. You've so nicely explained why he believes this declaration of neutrality is important, but what did he think of the French Revolution? He was... Sorry, Will, I don't mean to preempt you. No, 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 it's fine, either, either way. He, he was, Jefferson was, I would say, absolutely delighted with the French Revolution. Now, it's, it is important to note, in the early stages of the revolution, I'm talking going back to uh, 1789, even people like Hamilton and Washington, and I believe Vice President Adams, were granted honorary citizenship by this new French Republic, and they all welcomed it. Um, it's not until the blood starts flowing in the streets uh, and until the French begin to sort of flex their, their muscles and start to call for kind of worldwide Republican revolution uh, that you begin to see some American, what we will later call Federalists, drift away from their support for the French Revolution. Jefferson's support for that revolution remains fairly... Uh, consistent, fairly uh, persistent, uh, even to the point where you get that famous letter where he reprimands a protege of his, William Short, who was at the American Embassy in Paris, and Short has written home about the blood flowing in the streets, about these spectacles of you know people being aristocrats, priests, nuns, a member of the royal members of the royal family being executed to in front of cheering crowds. He's writing home about that, and he's short is disturbed by this. Jefferson reprimands him in this famous letter, the so-called Adam and Eve letter, hmm. where Jefferson says, "Look, if this revolution, if it requires killing, and I'm loosely paraphrasing, but not that loosely, killing every man and woman in France." save one man and one woman to keep the species alive, so be it. So Jefferson's revolutionary zeal, I think, was um, for real. And it's the kind of stance that Hamilton found absolutely appalling. Yeah, it, 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 it one, um, again, I think from Hamilton's point of view, there's a certain wonderment at how far does Jefferson have to be pushed before Jefferson would ever say, this is reason run a riot. This is no longer reason. Yeah. Um, you know, I would rather see, you know, half the earth, whatever, pass away before, the, if, if this fails, republicanism fails, the human cause writ large fails. So, I mean, Jefferson really almost in apocalyptic terms about yes. the potential failure of this revolution I was always struck, uh, you know, uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, where he mentions, I'd never come across it before, Jefferson's commentary on Louis, uh, on King Louis, saying, you know, he's a good man. 
Now, I mean, I understand a lot of things change. It's just the drama of going from, uh, you know, being able to comment on the king in that fashion to, you know, a very, um, I mean, I want to choose my words carefully here, but sort of a celebratory off with his head. This had to happen. It's a really, it's, I don't mean to overuse the term here, but it's jarring to go from yeah. good man to off with his head, uh, absolutely necessary. And I understand there's water under the bridge, so to speak, on this. But um, yeah, for for Hamilton, it's you know Hamilton had said way, long since that he thought Jefferson had, as he put it, in maybe not the most you know kind of genteel terms here, but that 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 Jefferson has the French disease, right? Jefferson <laughs> has the French disease, and it's only deepening as he as he expresses his admiration and his willingness to defend even apparently the excesses of um of the terror once you the Girondists are killed off and in comes you know Marat or Robespierre and so on and so forth just exceeding themselves uh, in some sense not to be able to deny that um really for Hamilton is um is is shocking just to yeah. add to what Will said, sorry, David, but uh, uh, Jefferson's statement that um, uh, in addition to the sort of Adam and Eve letter that Will and I have both been citing, um, Jefferson Jefferson's view, I'm sad, sad to report, was shared somewhat by Madison, who's also who's frequently portrayed as a more moderate voice, and I think generally that's true. But at one point in 1793-94, Madison also defends the, the sort of guillotining of the aristocrats and the, the royal family. And again, I'm loosely paraphrasing, but the quote is something along the lines of, uh, you know, that's if that's the punishment meted out to criminals, so be it. And it, it was that kind of talk that that sort of um, just this kind of casual acceptance of this revolutionary violence that again appalled both Hamilton and Vice President John Adams. Then there is an uncomfortable resemblance with the the zeal of the Bolsheviks who issue no similar question. statements about the costs of of this change. Uh, we no have a tongue-in-cheek uh, observation from Jake Peterson who asks uh, of you, Steve, is this where Jefferson derangement <laughs> syndrome begins? <laughs> so we, we have a yet, yet another precursor to, uh, to the trolling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Jake knows that I suffer. I've confessed to Jake over the years in various classes that I do suffer from Jefferson derangement <laughs> syndrome, but I'm a, I'm a proud member of that club. Well, he certainly he gives you a lot to work with, you and other members of the club. Um, you know, it's it's fascinating to hear all of the details uh, of the 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 bloodletting and and the American response to it because this letter, these letters, the exchange are it, it, they're so academic in in many ways. I mean, it's, it's sometimes we lose sight that it's it's related to a foreign policy issue. Um, I do do want to focus our attention on Madison's. A presentation of the proclamation as uh, a law in intention, a law in effect, which therefore qualifies it as the domain of, of the legislature. Is, is that a valid interpretation of, of the proclamation? Um, is, is Madison exaggerating what a neutrality proclamation does? Or is he onto something here that it really is in effect a law? I would be out of my depth here, but I will nonetheless say that I, I give Madison in what I think was, I don't want to say a sort of lackluster, you know, Madison was sort of uh, interminable and is complaining about having to do this, right? And then he finally kind of got, got round to it, so to speak. I'm, I'm going to have to do it. Um, but having said that, um, you know, and so I'm not I'm sort of, perhaps I'll say, privy to the legal aspect of that. It's a great question. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it seems to me that Madison has a fair point that it is taking on the aspect of, uh, you know, of a law uh, as it applies to international relations. 
And, um, you know, again, you know, his argument about there, there can be no admixture here. We don't want, you know, you, you know, Hamilton seems to speak to his comfort with an admixture of executive and legislative, uh, which is a usurpation at the end of the day and, you know, effectively will deny um, separation of powers um, and is, uh, you know, sort of antithetical, I think, uh, Madison is arguing here, antithetical ultimately to the Constitution, uh, if that kind of thing is allowed, uh, you know, to continue. Um, so I, I don't know, that's probably not particularly helpful, but I, but I, I do want to say that I understand it over the longer term, that if this is going to perdure, you're going to have to have a kind of, you know, presumably legislative answer to this situation. But one of the things I always talk to my students about is the unprecedented nature of this, uh, virtually everything that's coming along. Early Republic, you know, you're coming off the revolution, you're coming off the Confederation, you're coming off the critical period. Um, things have moved pretty much fast and furious. You've seen challenges, you know, Shays Rebellion internally. Now you see the potentiality for foreign intervention and inter, you know, meddling and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, on one hand, I can forgive Hamilton, the, if that's the, even the way to put it, the, the, the need to move with some dispatch on this, that executive orders, executive proclamations, kind of, it's probably the worst possible analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway, Lincoln on Reconstruction during the war. I have to move now. Uh, I, I don't have time for Congress to act on this because if I don't move quickly on this, w- there won't be any constitution to defend. I mean, I have to move with some rapidity in a way that Congress can't move. Um, and I think, you know, you know, Madison is, I, I, I think he, and if I, I guess I would say, if I think he's scoring some points, I think he scores some points with me on this. Um, but I don't know that his solution is, you know, could have or would have been a solution in the short term. I think something had to happen. I think something needed to happen you're going to start having a lot more incidents out there uh, on the high seas, so on and so forth. Um, we need something coming from the United States. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to Stephen on that. Yeah, I, I think you did a great job of that question, Will, and I'm glad you took it first because I would have struggled with, with that one. I mean, I suppose Hamilton would have said, look, Congress still has tools at its disposal. It can if it wish you know, declare war on one of these combatants. I mean, it can go in full bore uh, on the side of the French if Congress so chooses. But again, up until that point, or up until you have a formal treaty arrangement of some point, at some point, which by the way, is why the Jay Treaty is going to be such a combative. It's The Jay Treaty has to be seen in light of this event, of the Neutrality Proclamation. It's all seen as part of a piece by the Jeffersonians of moving this nation towards a formal alliance with Great Britain. And they assumed, the Jeffersonians assumed that from the start, okay? But Hamilton's argument is until Congress exercises its enumerated powers, these foreign policy calls have to be made by the head of state, in part, as Will put it, uh, uh, due to the fact of the speed necessary, the, the, the incredible changes of events that take place in Congress's inability to move with that speed, with that secrecy, with that dispatch, as Hamilton put it. David, you asked us a minute ago or so about La, uh, Lafayette. I didn't address it. I just, I will say this. Lafayette, of course, originally is a, is a big fan of the sort of Republican movement that begins to take hold in 1789. He extends that key of the Bastille to George Washington. For those listeners who have been to Mount Vernon, they love to display that, to show you that key that was uh, sent to Washington by General Lafayette. But even over time, Lafayette becomes a victim in a sense of the excesses of the French Revolution He's thrown in jail for not being, you know, politically pure enough. And even people like Thomas Paine, who rallied to the cause of the revolutionaries, will also end up in jail. So from the perspective of a Hamilton, the experience of what happened to Lafayette, to Thomas Paine, 
and to countless other Republicans of a somewhat moderate nature who ended up either being imprisoned or executed. You know, for Hamilton, this, this was not a sober revolution. Ours was, theirs wasn't, therefore we need to keep as much distance from this thing as possible. Yeah, Laf I was going to say Lafayette even wrote, and I, I don't recall who he was writing to, uh, forgive me for that, but in any case, um, you know, he was imprisoned, as Steve said, uh, he, you know, someone who saw him there said he's a cadaver, he's, he's emaciated, he's impoverished, he's lost all, much of his family um, was guillotined, uh, and he himself said, and this was, uh, you know, pretty common knowledge, ultimately, I, and I think as things started to turn in the context of the terror, these kinds of things fed into it. But it was a rather remarkable fact. Lafayette said, many of the French officers who you fought with in your revolution, they're dead. And they are dead by the guillotine. It is the guillotine that has taken them. That's how far this has gone. That, you know, our officer corps who did everything risk life and limb for your revolution, they're dead now by virtue of presumably running afoul of our revolution, uh, in essence. So pretty remarkable turn of events in, in that regard. Right, right. I mean, for, for a hero of the, uh, the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, just to finish off the um, Declaration of Neutrality, we did get another question um, through the Q&A. Was this an executive order? Was it a formal order or merely a presidential statement? My understanding is that this was an executive order, that this did, uh, that the president, in a sense, citing his power to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, given to him under Article 2, was ordering, essentially, federal officials to enforce this neutrality. Uh, yeah. So that, that's my take on it. Yeah, it was it 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 was uh, sort of more than just kind of a statement of desire or something along those lines, David. And um, in fact, there was this exchange with um, I guess it was in the level of a cabinet meeting when Washington kind of hustles back to Philadelphia. You know, once all this is you know ginning up here, we got to have a meeting. You know, and um, Hamilton, for, in his capacity as head of the Treasury Department, says, "Well, um, you know, I." let's use customs officers, <laughs> you know, people I, I'm overseeing, but let's use, okay, you know, but let's use customs officers to oversee enforcement of this, right? And Jefferson says, um, in effect, that they will become a core of spies. He says that they will form a core of spies. And ultimately, he says, you know, adamantly opposed to the Treasury Department handling this, to the Treasury Secretary handling it. So that speaks sort of prima facie to, it has the force of law, and what they ultimately end up doing, as I recall, is saying, "Okay, we're going to turn it over to Edmund Rand uh, to rent to the Attorney General's office. He will be responsible for enforcing this. Jefferson's much more comfortable with him enforcing whatever needs to be enforced than he would ever have, um, you know, Hamilton by this time." Thank you. Um, I have two related questions to ask. The first is how does the exchange between Helvidius and Pacificus speak to the larger differences between Hamilton and Madison? How do we see these differences uh, develop uh, throughout the rest of the 1790s and, and into the um, early 19th century? Uh, Madison, of course, will is a, is a future president. A terrific question, David. Of course, Madison and Hamilton start off as allies at the Constitutional Convention. Hamilton, you know, I would say they are part of the core, Madison even more than Hamilton, the core leadership team of the, the nationalists or the centralizers. Perhaps that's overstating it somewhat, but, uh, and then of course, Hamilton recruits Madison to contribute to the, what will become known as the Federalist Papers. So these two are very much uh, allied with one another in 1787, 88, I would say even during the first six to nine months of the Washington administration. Uh, now, when Thomas Jefferson returns uh, from Paris in March or April of 1790 to assume his duties as Secretary of State, 
I do think things begin to change. Uh, we could get into a lengthy debate over how much of that was Jefferson sort of working on Madison. I think that is part of it. But I do think over time, Madison begins to feel that, or believe, excuse me, that Hamilton is, uh, as he put it, uh, as Madison put it, sort of almost using sleight of hand to infuse powers into the executive branch that the framers in Philadelphia in 1787 never envisioned. And so I do think for the most part, Madison drifting away from Hamilton's broad, expansive uh, interpretation of Article II um, is a principled objection with some help uh, from Thomas Jefferson. Um, and so that is going to have a significant impact on Madison's long-term thinking. I've argued elsewhere that the way Madison, President Madison, conducts the War of 1812 in an extremely non-Hamiltonian fashion, I would say almost to the point of risking the existence of the nation. Uh, it's, par it's partly a result of the lessons that James Madison learns in the 1790s and his fear of that expansive interpretation of executive power that Hamilton uh, seems to represent. Yeah, and you have to wonder a little bit if a little bit of that practical wartime experience even then kind of works another, I'm not going to try to make a federalist out of him, but post-war, you know, his, well, you know, maybe maybe in an enhanced standing army in time of peace isn't quite such a bad thing. Maybe we do need to consider and will consider rechartering a second bank of the United States. Uh, yeah. um, you know, some of those kinds of post-war things that, yeah. um, you know, have... So, uh, have yeah, have some of those uh, tertium quid kind of doctrinator yeah. Republicans going, what What happened to Hamilton? He's not even one of us anymore. Yeah, no, the, the tertium quids and is it uh, John Randolph of Roanoke? John Randolph and John you know, he, he explicitly says that Madison has come down with a kind of Hamiltonian disease. Yeah. President Madison post-war has come down with a kind of Hamiltonian disease. Yeah. But to go to go back to the 1790s, if I might, just very quickly, David, just toward the end of it there, when you when you start getting into because this speaks to something that Steve mentioned, when you look at, you know, Madison as if you think about the, the debate over whether or not to have a Bill of Rights and Hamilton, look, for all intents and purposes, the Constitution is a Bill of Rights and Hamilton kind of through iterations going from I don't have a problem with it to no, I actually really want it more or less. But by the time you look at um, the alien sedition laws, you know, the Federalist-inspired uh, alien sedition laws, I mean, I think it's very principled on Madison's part, the way he's arguing against it. For him, by then, this is just the full flowering of a kind of Hamiltonian Federalist yeah. uh, might makes right. We're, we, we got the power. I mean, we got the power. Uh, and if, you know, if, if, we want, if we're going to throw a clap you in jail because we don't like – now, I think there's context there. I mean, the fact of the matter is there's some Democratic Republican societies and people so on and so forth who are saying, look, I'd rather fight with the French than I would this government and our own army if it comes to it. But I do think that Hamilton, I, 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 you know, to sort of echo Stephen, I think it's principle on his part when he says, look, I mean, Hamilton's, you know, if given half a chance, he, he would use a sleight of hand and he would use it to subvert your civil liberty if he had, if, if, yeah. he, if he can. Yeah. You know, we could also make that 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 charge of uh, flip flopping, if you will, to use another modern term against Jefferson um, when he when he carries out the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, he's very Hamiltonian uh, yeah. on, on that end. And, you know, the presidency does does change ideas when you have to put them in practice or find out their the difficulty thereof. Um, the second question I wanted to ask uh, more directly relates to uh, the subsequent history of American foreign policy. And in your introduction to uh, this document in, in the volume, Steve, you note how this foreshadows realism and idealism as durable strains in American foreign policy. And so I'd like to ask you both to speak to how realism represented by Hamilton here and idealism as represented by Madison further uh, develop and, and carry forward, not just in the 19th century, but uh, of course, uh, right up to our own times. Yeah, I think Hamilton is frequently referred to as the father of the realist school uh, in terms of American foreign policy. In other words, the, the idea that one's foreign policy actions 
should be guided by a sense of the national interest. To what extent will this foreign policy initiative benefit the United States? And there is certainly uh, an attempt to push aside or perhaps even completely ignore uh, any sort of idealistic motivations in terms of guiding your foreign policy. Um, and I do, and, and, and by the way, you're going to see a classic statement of Hamiltonian realism in President Washington's farewell address, which of course is a co-authored piece, uh, some might even say primarily a Hamilton piece edited by President Washington, in which Washington makes the case for, again, putting the national interest first and foremost, not letting, as Hamilton would put it, in the midst of this neutrality debate, and this is Hamilton, not me, so send your complaints to Hamilton, <laughs> um, not letting a womanish attachment uh, to any foreign nation guide your foreign policy. In other words, don't let passions guide your foreign policy. So if you feel a certain affinity for, for France, as Hamilton believed Jefferson did, that is a horrible way to make foreign policy decisions. And I do mention in the collection that uh, we're talking about tonight, uh, American Foreign Policy to 1899, other examples where I think it's fairly clear, even as recently as the 20th century, uh, that certain American political figures developed a uh, a passionate attachment to, in the case of, let's say, Henry Wallace during the New Deal of the Soviet Union, uh, in the case of a lot of right-wing Americans prior to the Second World War, there was a lot of admiration for Hitler's anti-communism and his nationalism. Uh, some New Dealers admired Mussolini's state-centralized, uh, highly centralized economic system, and then as recently as the Cold War, a lot of Americans developed what Hamilton would call a passionate attachment to places like Vietnam or Cuba or Sandinista, Nicaragua. Yeah, I'll just add to that, if, if I could, real briefly, David, that uh, it, it seems to me, I really like, you know, Steve's introduction there to the piece is very helpful in terms of that um sort of chronological span and I think demonstrating again what it is becoming evident in that document that is this sort of tension in which the liberty and the order are held that both sides are and it's pretty clear who you know who, who's kind of coming down on which side more strongly but that doesn't necessarily mean of course to the exclusion of the other I mean for example Hamilton can support the idea of liberty in the French Revolution as far as uh, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity may not quite be life, liberty, pursuit of happiness may not be quite, but, but um, you know, to create an opportunity society or bring down, you know, uh, a, a, a aristocratic society where, you know, it's, 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 you know, greatness based upon birth, not on accomplishment, he can subscribe to that. And the same thing, I think, with uh, Jefferson and Hamilton both, it's not as though they're bereft of any understanding of the necessity of order, but I sort of see that dynamic uh, held in a certain tension, you know, moving forward as the one side is trying to make sure that there's not a violation of those civil, civil liberties, those basic liberties, while the other side is saying, if you don't use sort of Patrick Henry's lamp of experience to light my way, you, you, know, you, you will, you know, you will fall victim to you know, this emotionalism, right? You will fall victim to um, this kind of excess, this emotional excess, which, you know, if it's the elevation of reason above all else to the exclusion of, you know, um, whatever, tradition, religion, prudence, um, patrimony, whatever you want to choose there, um, you got to chuck all that because we're all into a brave new world then then that will be uh, that will be problematic and it will destroy all this um, um, in the end. And so it seems to carry forward. Uh, I was struck by that when you look at the variety of people from the variety of, you know, sort of intellectual or ideological perspectives who are, you know, embracing those various things that Steve mentioned in the introduction. I should point out, David, that David Tucker, when he was editing this volume, that I was contributing these essays pointed out to me that the Jeffersonians uh, could argue, and I think in fact did argue, that Hamilton had a passionate attachment to Great Britain, had a womanish 
Again, their language, not mine, attachment to Britain. I had to swallow hard and include that in my introduction, but it's a fair point. Thank you. Um, I think we have time for one more question from the Q&A. Thomas Trasco asks about the presidential process or the president speaking or writing or saying to Congress, well, we need to declare war and what sort of arguments are, are offered. And I'd, I'd like to add to Thomas's question, how do we see the interplay between the president and Congress subsequently develop when the U.S. declares war? There, I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that requires the president to request no. war, but we often see that happening. So is that sort of a, a balancing um, or a merging of, of the respective powers in, in a productive uh, way, or, or does it have drawbacks as well? You, you do see in 1812, which technically speaking is our first declared war, um, and, and you get historians and political scientists all over the place on this question of to what extent did James Madison drive the call for war, for the War of 1812, or was it driven by the so-called war hawks, Clay, Calhoun, and others in Congress? That, that is still up for debate. Uh, but it is true that President Madison did issue in June of 1812 a war message to Congress, essentially asking them to, you know, authorize him to authorize the nation to to go to a, uh, to a declared war. Um, I do think we had something of a more healthy balance prior to the 20th century, uh, because you could also argue as late as the 1890s that the Spanish-American War was driven more by Congress than perhaps by President McKinley. But the 20th century, I think, is going to blow that completely out of the water. And uh, you're going to see all sorts of instances, numerous, uncountable instances of presidents using force without any declaration of war. So we've had five declared wars in our history. And according to most counts, we've had well over two to 300 instances of American forces and hostilities. So I think we've lost that balance that you just referred to, David. Yeah, yeah the I'll last look. declaration of war was against Hungary in 1943. <laughs> That's Isn't right. that amazing? That's right, yeah. It's, ama it's, it, it, it's amazing. I, I was just gonna say for, I mean, I, I have very little add. I thought Steve's answer is spot on there, but I would just say, um, I, I think it's accurate. Um, I've never seen anything that would disabuse me of it. And that was that, um, even if it's a kind of pressure a tactic, the War of 1812 that Henry Clay effectively um, said to Madison, you're going to get, you want to be president again, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to support a declaration of war, right? I mean, so even if that's apocryphal, it, 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 it at least seems to speak to some sense that what we need is something from both branches here. Um, not, not, not that the president obviously declares war, but that the president is on board with what we may do nationally. War being such a momentous thing, it, you know, it, it'd be at, at, at the very least unseemly <laughs> to have only one branch where the, where the other's not on board with it. Even the U.S.-Mexican War, whatever one may say about the origins of that, and James K. Polk and the whole business of moving troops to the Rio Grande and being provocative and so on and so forth. Polk wants some sense from Congress. And I think, uh, you know, that um, I'm going to cultivate that um, because, you know, at the end of the day, and, and I think Polk clearly wants war, right? But at the end of the day, I mean, he has some regard at least for the necessity of having a kind of, you know, congressional approval or what he can get. Um, at you know, uh, for his particular policies, clearly they're taking us down a road um, toward war. So uh, there, there seems, again, that's what I was just saying with respect to Steve's point, there does seem to be more uh, consulting of both than what we see uh, in the 20th century. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you all for participating. I think this is a good point to um, say our farewells. Thanks to Will and Steve for great commentary and analysis of this document. And we thank um, our participants for their questions as well. As a reminder, you'll receive an email within the next week that includes a link to further readings and will also contain a link 
to our archived webinar, which we hope you'll share with your colleagues as well as on social media. If you've enjoyed tonight's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course in our MAG program, the Masters of American History and Government. You can find more information about online course offerings as well as many other resources for teachers, uh, including these documents in the collection at tah.org. Documents in detail will return on December 14th. We'll continue the discussion on American foreign policy by looking at Henry Clay's market speech. Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on the Pacificus Helvidius debates. For more information on our webinars, core document volumes, in-person educator professional development programs, our graduate program, and our free document library, please visit us at tah.org.